0: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker. What do you do if you get swallowed by a hippopotamus? I don't know. You run around inside until you get all pooped out. I'm Rico Galliano.
1: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner
0: Party the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a not-so-classy joke from Ryan Johnson. He is director of the new, quite classy film, Looper. That'll help break the ice. Later, we'll speak with another director, Martin McDonough. His new comedy, Seven Psychopaths, comes out this weekend.
1: Also coming up, we search for an American cheese worthy of the name. Mm. New Yorker movie critic David Denby asks if the movies have a future. And film and TV legend Ed Asner has this gentle message for our listeners.
2: Audience, you need help.
1: He's right, and we are here to provide it. Yep, but first, as at any dinner party, we start
0: with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The VP candidates square off tonight.
3: For the second time now in five days, Walmart workers walked off the job in protest. A
0: member of the
2: Russian punk band
0: Pussy Riot has been freed by a Moscow appeals court. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is an editor at BuzzFeed, the news and culture website. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend?
4: Well, it's a little bit of a heartbreaker, but it appears oh, no. that... Jurassic Park is not, in fact, a documentary and that scientists have discovered that um, one can't actually clone dinosaurs.
0: Is that really something that that we should be sad about? Did that hit you hard? I I don't know about
4: you, but... Jurassic Park 4 is coming out soon, and I clung to the belief that perhaps maybe yeah. five, ten years in the future, we could go to Disneyland and actually be populated with dinosaurs.
1: So why why can't we do that?
4: Yeah, well, apparently um, two scientists completed a study of a certain dinosaur bird called the moa, the bones mm-hmm. of the moa, um, and they've determined that the half-life of DNA is 521 years, not, say, 65 million years when... <laughs> Wow. T Rex has roamed the earth,
0: so the DNA has decomposed and we can't extract it to clone the dinosaurs. Yes, yeah. But you could clone—I don't know what died just a few hundred years ago, uh, 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 George Burns. Yeah, civility in Congress.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, um, the lifespan of DNA has been the subject of some confusion because bones and whatnot are stored in different um, temperatures. Yeah. In this case, the scientists were using bones—actual bones—that were stored in naturally suboptimal temperatures and were exposed to water and whatnot. So they
0: weren't preserved very well.
4: They were not preserved very well. And so there's some thought that maybe perfect preservation could lengthen the lifespan of DNA. You mean,
1: you're just trying to keep the dream alive, Rayhan. <laughs> it's all right. There's <laughs> going to be no dinosaurs. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got a solution
0: for this. You're going to work with me to realize my dream of building a time machine. And <laughs> we're going to send refrigerators back in time, store those bones correctly, and Rayhan's going to get her dream. Yeah,
4: that is true. Don't run into
0: your dinosaur ancestors or you might not be here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> (laughs) You're going to have to get
1: them to kiss at the dinosaur prom. I did
4: just see Looper last night.
1: Rehan, thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson infused with booze. First, the history part. Right around this time,
0: back in 1901, a woman named Annie Edson Taylor made headlines. The folks at your dinner party probably won't recognize the name. Michelle Philippi tells her story.
3: Annie Edson Taylor definitely did not look like a daredevil. She was 63 years old. She wore plain dresses and kept her hair in a bun. But in October 1901, she decided to become the first person ever to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. She wasn't crazy. Well, actually, she probably was a little. But she was also desperate. A Civil War widow and retired school teacher, her nest egg was almost gone. So when she heard about crowds flocking to upstate New York for a world's fair, she figured she'd get their attention with a stunt and then earn cash from a speaking tour. Annie had a special watertight barrel built for the occasion, lined with a mattress and a lucky heart-shaped pillow. As hundreds watched, she crawled inside, had helpers fill the barrel with compressed air from a bicycle pump, and then got dumped into the Niagara River. 20 minutes and a 170 foot drop later, she made it. Her only injuries, a minor concussion, a cut on her forehead, and probably a nightmare or two. As she reportedly said upon stepping out of the barrel, quote, no one ought ever do that again. Annie didn't quite get the payday she wanted. Some say her manager embezzled her money. Others say he stole her barrel and went on tour with it, along with a younger imposter he said was Annie. In any case, she died penniless 14 years before Social Security.
0: So that was the kind of sad history. And after that, maybe we could use a drink. I am speaking with Soso Sukram. He's general manager at Shoeless Joe's. That is a bar on the Canadian side of the border in the city of Niagara Falls. Soso, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire?
5: I came up with, it's called the Annie Edison's Barrel Margarita. Uh-oh.
0: <laughs> I can sense where this is going. <laughs>
5: What it is, really, is um, a margarita, and we serve it in a mug that's shaped like a barrel.
0: Okay, good. It's not in an, an actual barrel.
5: <laughs> no, like... no. That would be too much cocktail for anybody.
0: It's not 200 gallons of margarita. That's right.
5: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the margarita is pretty straightforward. It, you know, has the lime mix, tequila, of course, and triple sec, and so we blend that to make a frozen margarita. But here's the thing. We take a small Coronita bottle, which is uh, Corona, okay. but there's a mini Corona, and we turn that upside down in the uh, frozen margarita.
0: So the bottle is sort of stuck in the frozen? That's
5: right. And as you sip on the margarita, the Corona slowly uh, floats to the bottom of your uh, barrel. So you kind
0: of get a beer chaser slowly over time.
5: That's right. The trick is you don't ever try and take the coronita out of the uh, the glass. It's just going to spill everywhere.
0: Although it would, it seems like it might be appropriate if it spilled everywhere because then it would be like a waterfall.
5: Yeah, you can create that scene <laughs> at your table if you want to wear it.
0: <laughs> let, me, let me ask you: There are ten people who have survived the falls including right. some of them very recently. Did you ever meet any of them? Do they come into your bar?
5: Yes, I met uh, Nick Walenda. He just crossed over the Falls directly on a tightrope. Oh, that's right.
0: He walked on a tightrope over it.
5: Yeah, June 13th of this year.
0: It does say something about Annie, though, that walking over the Falls in a tightrope seems less insane than what she did.
5: Going over in a barrel is nuts, but <laughs> I always say to my staff, there's something about Niagara Falls that makes people want to do crazy things.
0: I, I blame the margarita in a barrel. I think so. And Brendan, you know, we should say a word of warning for anyone insane enough to try to duplicate Annie's feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will get slapped with a fine for what's called stunting without a license at Niagara Falls. Wow. (laughs) And it's something like $10,000.
1: Wait, does that mean there are waterfall cops who just kind of wait for stuff like this to happen? (laughs) Yes. It's kind of a cool gig. Yeah,
0: it's like Baywatch with more clothes. (laughs) Everyone's wearing warm clothes.
1: Uh, Folks, we'd like it if you attempted to visit our website. The address is dinnerpartydownload.com.
0: And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
1: And today our guest is actress Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She portrayed the girl for whom Scott Pilgrim fought the world in the film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. This week she stars in the Sundance hit Smashed, about a young couple struggling with alcohol. It's a film about a tough subject that also entertains. Here she is with a list of other films that do the same.
6: Hi, I'm Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I'm in a film called Smashed, and the film is very funny. It's it's different than your typical film about alcoholism and the way that it treats that subject. So I've sort of thought of a few different films that have made me think about an issue or subject in a way that is, you know, sometimes lighter or, you know, different than other films tackling those same issues. ¶¶ My first one is Citizen Ruth, which is pretty much a satirical comedy. It's certainly not a heavy film in any way, although it deals with the issue of abortion. The lead character, played by Laura Dern, is very messed up, in and out of jail. She's had five kids. She's getting thrown back in jail. She's pregnant, and the judge basically tells her if she gets an abortion, he'll lessen her sentence. So she gets taken in by... This very pro-life woman, Laura Dern's character decides, yeah, you're going to take me in and pay for me to live a life? Sure, yeah, I'll keep the baby, no problem. Um, And uh, at another point, she gets taken in by a sort of pro-choice movement.
3: Ah, Ruth,
4: there's something you need to know. I'm not a baby saver. I work for pro-choice. You see, Ruth, there's a war on, and I guess you could call me a spy.
6: It's great because I think it's sort of subverting just the ridiculousness of those two extremes and how the actual issue can get lost with just people fighting over, you know, wanting to be right. Um, And I was just really inspired by Laura Dern's performance because she goes for it so much. She was so unafraid. Ah! It just kind of made me want to to bring that same energy to Kate, to humiliate myself, to look ridiculous at times, but to know that it's all going to service the material and, and be okay. My second selection is a film by Andrea Arnold called Fish Tank. It's about a young girl um, in her teens who's growing up in sort of a rough area, somewhere in the UK, I'm not sure exactly where, and she's, she has a single mother, and at, at a certain point in the film, Michael Fassbender's character comes into it, and he starts dating her mother, and he becomes the first male figure in her life, and she really latches onto him, forms a bond with him that eventually kind of unravels and causes a lot of problems for her.
7: I was going to call you. You ain't even
4: got my number.
2: You know I like you. here.
4: Well, why
2: did you leave there? You know why.
6: For me, I try to find the hope in that kind of a story because otherwise, it's it's pretty bleak. If you can't find it somewhere, um, I think there's hope in her, and she wants to be a dancer. She spends a lot of time in her room, break dancing, videotaping herself, working on her moves. And I think that you really see the resilience in her and the life in her and that spark that there is something special about her, and then there's something worth going forward and and making something of yourself. My third film is Wendy and Lucy, a very, very low-key film that um, follows a homeless woman and her dog. It's a film directed by Kelly Reichardt, and it stars Michelle Williams. I can remember a scene in that film where she's forced to stay the night in the woods and she's cold and she's alone and she wakes up and she sees this other homeless man near her and there's kind of a train going by and he's muttering something. Don't look at me. You don't know what he's saying, but it's just really disturbing seeing this young woman who's alone, who's obviously terrified. I'm out here. I'm trying to be a good boy. And you really feel for her. You feel terrified for her. And I think she ends up sort of running into a gas station bathroom and sort of cleaning herself up and just shaking and crying. And it's a really affecting scene. It is kind of a different experience watching those emotional, harrowing scenes as an actor because you feel that empathy, you feel bad when you're watching someone go through something like that, but it's exciting as an actor to see somebody really access those emotions. When the film's over, I go, oh my God, that was so incredible what they were able to do, and it's, it's amazing.
0: The guest list from Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Her new film, *Smashed*, opens this weekend. Enrico, I was thinking Morrissey is on tour right now. Okay. So if you caught so, one of
1: his shows, yeah, watch one of those last couple of films <laughs> Mary recommended, and then you know took a stroll across the Browning autumn landscape. Yeah, you could really lull yourself into this kind of perfect melancholic stupor. You if know,
0: that's what you're going for. <laughs> uh, but ladies and gentlemen, if it is, you probably shouldn't stick around because coming up we've got Ed Asner offering etiquette advice. Which is a good thing because we don't think he'd take it. You're right. <laughs> when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, author Justin Torres reads from the novel that helped him win a National Book Foundation Award last week. And later, Martin McDonough, writer director of the new movie Seven Psychopaths, says his bloody gangster comedies are misunderstood.
8: I, I see them more as rom coms.
4: Hmm.
0: Naturally. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to
1: behave, and here to answer them this week is Ed Asner. He's well-known for his Emmy Award-winning role as Lou Grant on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and that show's spin-off series Lou Grant. In 2009, he starred as the voice of Carl Fredrickson in the celebrated animated film Up. Currently, he's on Broadway alongside Paul Rudd and Michael Shannon in the play Grace where he plays Carl, a cantankerous German-born exterminator who lost his family as a child in Nazi Germany. I can't believe... That must have been a stretch for you to play cantankerous. Was that <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> now, have you heard... Uh, I, I just read a wonderful Dalton Trumbo quote. Dalton Trumbo, the writer. Yes, Dalton Trumbo, the writer. Okay. He was being uh, talked over by the audience while he was giving an important speech. And so he stopped and said, do you know the difference between a cactus and a caucus?" And they said, no. A cactus has the on the outside. <laughs> That's pretty cantankerous. Wow.
0: I'm going to be interested to see if the audience understands that quote with the operative word bleeped out, but thank you for giving us the opportunity. Oh, well, uh, I'm glad I helped. <laughs> so,
1: this play... Is, is about grace, and grace isn't a person. I mean, grace, the actual, you know, divine assistance. As in saving grace. As in saving grace. Indeed. Had you given much thought to divine assistance? Is it something that occurred to is you? Is that
2: what grace means to you, divine assistance?
1: That's what it means to Merriam-Webster. Um, oh. What does it mean to you? La-di-da. <laughs> well,
0: this, yeah. this is public radio. We have a dictionary on hand.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. To me, it means uh, artful movement. Hmm. But in this play,
1: kind and of a state of grace, I'm not yeah.
2: through. Yeah, okay. The <laughs> uh, state of grace, I think, would mean a, uh, almost picturing one surrounded by an aura. Sainthood, even. He's a wonderful man, and he himself is full of grace, as cantankerous as he is. You made your Broadway
0: debut, actually, in 1960, is my understanding, in Face of a Hero, which also starred Jack Lemon. What, if anything, do you remember about that time?
2: It was my first experience of Broadway, and it made it very easy for me to leave for Los Angeles after it closed. (laughs) Really? It wasn't fun? No, it wasn't fun. The the character was only written to get laughs. The director told me the night before rehearsals began, he said, loved your reading. Of course you can't be that funny. (laughs) So he had me doing my first scene with my back to the audience. Wow. Directors will do that
0: to you. Yeah. It's very impolite. Speaking of which, we have some etiquette questions from our
2: audience. Oops. Uh Uh-oh, that's Ed's cell phone. Wait a minute, who could this be? Oh, it's Philip Langner. Let me see what he has to say. Hello, Philip, I'm on the air. I'll call you when this is over.
0: Okay, bye-bye. So, clearly, Mr. Asner, you're the person to ask for uh, etiquette advice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, you clearly know how to comport yourself. And, uh, etiquette uh, it well. Yeah.
0: So, we've got some questions.
2: From sorry, what right. I've seen of you, your audience probably needs a lot of help. <laughs> the, <laughs> That's true. This is radio. They don't get to see me. But I'm this. seeing you. <laughs> audience, you need help.
0: <laughs> and here they are to ask for it. Uh, this is a question from Clinker they want us to call him or her, in Santa Monica, California. Not stinker. Not stinker, Mm -mm. clinker. This is one of the other reindeer, clinker. Mm -hmm. At weddings, I love clinking my glass with my fork. Oh, I see. 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 Which results in a fun, eye-rolling kiss from the bride and groom. But sometimes other guests shoot me dirty looks as though I've just spilled punch on the bride. Has this tradition become passé? I always thought it was a harmless
2: (laughs) and a fun rite of passage. I think it's a wonderful rite of passage. I think it's a... A wonderful, gentle-sounding custom to observe, and uh, those who are objecting to it must be tight. Ty- <laughs> so I would dismiss them, and they shouldn't have been invited to the wedding anyway.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, this is—it's a, a really elegant way to kind. Of, it's an old tradition. To we interrupt. don't get
2: those kind of people down in Santa Monica. No, no, <laughs> no. that's a New York thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. sure. Although I will—I do wonder—is it possible to do too much glass clinking? Where, if you're the bride or groom, you might think who is this guy who's so perverse he wants to keep seeing us kiss over and
2: over again? Oh, right. I say hell with you. I'll kiss her when I'm ready. Exactly. All right, well, here's another
1: question. This is from Bob in Chicago. Um, That's where I, That's my
2: wild oats town. Good
1: times? Chicago, good town? I love it. Yeah, really? I haven't, I haven't been in a long my time. my favorite city.
2: No offense, Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wait, there's another call. <laughs> who, who could this be? Oh, we'll find out later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're on Thank you. That's very
2: polite of you. Thanks, Ed. (laughs) All
1: right. So Bob from Chicago asks, if someone's telling an amazing story and I know that they're stretching the truth, should I bring it up? I worry because it just makes me seem like a party pooper, but some folks take poetic license too far,
2: I think. I know that feeling. I would think the appropriate thing to do, if you like the person, if you respect the person, let them have free reign. All right. hmm. Let them have their fun. And if you don't like them, cut them off at the pass.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: Expose them for the bull**** <laughs> they are.
1: So it's a subjective choice. There's no larger ethical way to play this. If you like the person, let him go ahead.
2: Yes, because he probably needs the attention, and he's Mm. probably doing it in an entertaining fashion. Sure. The guy you don't like is probably a blowhard. (laughs)
0: Now, I imagine as an actor, you encounter this situation a lot, people stretching the truth.
2: Well, I went to see Jews telling old jokes. Mm-hmm. I knew every one of those jokes, <laughs> but it was wonderful to sit there and hear those jokes.
1: That's a, that's an off-Broadway play where Jews tell yeah, jokes. Yeah, yeah. And so you didn't interrupt him.
2: You didn't go, I heard that one already. Yeah, well, Enough. We, we all knowingly nod to each other. And, <laughs> and even the goyim knew what uh, the jokes were. How important is it, for God's sake? That's yeah, true.
0: that's true. All right. All right, right. there you go, Bob in Chicago. And now we turn to Mark in Paris. How do you feel about Paris, Ed? I love it. All right.
1: Called the Chicago of France.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mark asks, how does one deal with people who knew one when one was much younger and who are shocked that one has aged? So they come upon you and they're like, oh my God,
2: you've aged. And my response to that would be that because of my sexual activity, it has is, it is just taken a terrible toll on me, but I can't stop. I just, I mean, the, it will do it. You know, it's like distance runners. They may be very, very healthy, but they look like the most haggard people in the world. Well, that's what sex does to me. Okay. Oh, man. This is, uh... It's age, aged me enormously, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm going to die. And then you say, oh, but you look really young. You look so yeah, young. You look so- so young.
0: Yes. Clearly, you're not getting any action.
2: <laughs> you really do. <laughs> I thought I turned it off. <laughs> God. All right,
0: Ed Asner. Thanks for answering our listeners' etiquette <laughs> questions and your phone. Who is this?
1: Ed currently co-stars with Paul Rudd in the Broadway production of the tragic comedy Grace. Not to be confused with good graces, which he's not a star of.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But folks, if you want to be more graceful in your social interactions, you can contact us with etiquette questions via dinnerpartydownload.org.
6: And now, time to eavesdrop.
1: Justin Torres burst onto the scene last year with his semi-autobiographical novella, We the Animals. It just came out in paperback, and last week the National Book Foundation named Justin to the prestigious 5 Under 35 list. Today we overhear him reading from the book's opening, in which the protagonist describes his family.
7: We wanted more. We knocked the butt ends of our forks against the table, tapped our spoons against our empty bowls. We were hungry. We wanted more volume, more riots. We turned up the knob on the TV until our ears ached with the shouts of angry men. We wanted more music on the radio. We wanted beats. We wanted rock. We wanted muscles on our skinny arms. We had bird bones, hollow and light, and we wanted more density, more weight. We were six snatching hands, six stomping feet. We were brothers, boys, three little kings locked in a feud for more. When it was cold, we fought over blankets until the cloth tore down the middle. When it was really cold, when our breath came out in frosty clouds, Manny crawled into bed with Joel and me. Body heat, he said. Body heat, we agreed. We wanted more flesh, more blood, more warmth. When we fought, we fought with boots and garage tools, snapping pliers. We grabbed at whatever was nearest, and we hurled it through the air. We wanted more broken dishes, more shattered glass, We wanted more crashes. And when our pops came home, we got spankings. We knew that there was something on the other side of pain, on the other side of the sting. Prickly heat radiated upward from our thighs and backsides. Fire consumed our brains. But we knew that there was something more, some place our pops was taking us with all this. We knew because he was meticulous, because he was precise, because he took his time. He was awakening us. He was leading us somewhere beyond burning and ripping, and you couldn't get there in a hurry. And when our father was gone, we wanted to be fathers. We hunted animals. We drudged through the muck of the creek, chasing down bullfrogs and water snakes. We plucked the baby robins from their nest. We liked to feel the beat of tiny hearts, the struggle of tiny wings. We brought their tiny, animal faces close to ours. Who's your daddy, we said. Then we laughed and tossed them into a shoebox. Always more. Always hungrily scratching for more. But there were times, quiet moments, when our mother was sleeping, when she hadn't slept in two days, and any noise, any stair creak, any shut door, any stifled laugh, any voice at all, might wake her, those still, crystal mornings when we wanted to protect her, this confused goose of a woman, this stumbler, this gusher, with her backaches and headaches and her tired, tired ways, this uprooted Brooklyn creature, this tough talker, always with tears when she told us she loved us, her mixed-up love, her needy love, her warmth. Those mornings when sunlight found the cracks in our blinds and laid itself down in strips on our carpet. Those quiet mornings when we'd fix ourselves oatmeal and sprawl onto our stomachs with crayons and paper, with glass marbles that we were careful not to rattle. When our mother was sleeping, when the air did not smell like sweat or breath or mold, when the air was still in light. Those mornings when silence was our secret game and our gift and our sole accomplishment, We wanted less. Less weight, less work, less noise, less father, less muscles, and skin, and hair. We wanted nothing, just this, just this.
1: Writer Justin Torres reading from the opening of his debut novella, We the Animals, and We Are the Dinner Party, from American Public Media.
0: And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner-party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is the mainstream movie business, and our teacher is David Denby. He was a film critic for The Atlantic, then New York Magazine, and for the last two decades or so, he has been one of the two main critics for The New Yorker. His new book of essays and reviews is required reading for anyone who gives a damn about movies, if you ask me. It is called, Do the Movies Have a Future?
9: And, David, it's an honor. Uh, I feel my responsibilities very heavily here. You should. This isn't book promotion. This is the future of the movies, right? That's right. You're educating uh, (laughs) the next
0: generation of filmgoers, so do it right. Uh, All right. So you spend a good chunk of the book criticizing modern, big-budget Hollywood movies. And you insist that it it used to and should produce better films. So, first of all, for the moment, let us give you that thesis that movies aren't what they used to be. Explain why this matters so much to you, because you you say that there are plenty of indie movies out there that you can enjoy. Why do you need mainstream movies to be better?
9: Well, the the indie movies often don't break through. Uh, If you consult The New York Times this morning, you'll see about a dozen little films that will struggle... A lot of them head straight for oblivion, I'm sorry to say, for everyone like like Beasts of the Southern Wild or Margin Call, which, you know, break through to a decent box office. I haven't given up on the idea of movies as our national theater. I know that when there's a a movie that's relevant to the way we think about our lives, uh, like The Social Network, uh, it really does pull together the conversation. And I haven't given up the romance of entering a darkened place with 500 strangers and breathing and crying at once together. Let me interrupt you on this for a second, though. Let,
0: let us for a moment not give you this thesis that you're saying. Haven't successive generations of critics always made this argument that movies are getting worse? I, I, You know, there's this the Halliwell's film
9: guide. Sure, sure, sure. Leslie
0: Halliwell, he's this British critic, put out this film guide a few decades ago that basically railed against every movie that had been made after about 1950.
9: Some of the movies that I'm sure you would champion, like almost all the movies of Stanley Kubrick. Why you have it right. When sound came in in 1928, there were esthetes who said, it's over, right? When the screen went wide in the early 50s, there were critics, including Pauline Kael, who said, it's over. Composition (laughs) has been destroyed. Exactly. Now, they were wrong, obviously, in both cases. And neither of those uh, enormous changes dehumanized movies. And if anything, they upped the, the human presence. Suddenly, you know, you had this, the sound of Judy Garland singing, uh, mm. you know, of Humphrey Bogart talking. Suddenly, you had camels walking across the Jordan, Jordanian desert and Lawrence of Arabia across a 70-foot wide yeah. screen. Well, that's not the human presence. No. <laughs> okay. You had some <laughs> humans does, in that movie, But it shows too. maybe
0: the humans being dwarfed by the environment in, in okay, a way. Okay.
9: That's, that's something great. And you're saying modern movies have lost that humanity? The six big studios owned by six conglomerates, are trying to end emotional involvement in movies and just create kind of sensational involvement. They, I don't think they want you to feel a direct connection to the life and death of characters as people did in the past. They want to just excite you. How, how did we get to that point? Well, we've gotten there by degrees. I mean, movies were essentially made for grown-ups until about the middle 70s, late 70s, when uh, the success of Star Wars and the extraordinary marketing of that movie electrifying the whole country with a movie opening you know all at once that linked with the growth of multiplexes made them realize that they could go for a, an enormous opening weekend
0: yeah this is something you mentioned in the book that that the need to get a huge opening weekend box office is, has led to the downfall of movies why
9: kids go opening weekend people let's say over 40 tend to hold back until they've heard from their friends or maybe if there's a critic so if you're following me, the, the taste of 15 to 25-year-olds is exercising an influence on what gets made way out of proportion to their numbers in the population. That's part one. Part two is that two-thirds of the box office for these movies comes from overseas. So let's, we're going to defoliate our films of local flavor, of, of intricate dialogue, of psychology. We're going to have fun, we're gonna, you know, but we're going to make things as simple as possible so they can follow it any place in the world. And the combination of those two things, the boasting rights for opening weekend and the overseas marketing, has made those movies as impersonal as they are. You end the book with a bunch of essays about promising developments in movies that you think offer
0: glimmers of hope for a better movie industry. You specifically mention the indie mumblecore genre and the movie Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Some of these pieces in the book are a few years old, though. Have these developments panned out the way you hoped? Are you still optimistic about them?
9: There's hope. There's hope. There's always hope. And there, I mean, Rise of the Planet of the Apes was spectacle, but I thought it really, digital invention, brought out the inherent character of being an ape and just exaggerated it slightly, but not too much. So I thought, and not only that, the movie was very touching. That movie, if you want to be you know, specific, is definitely going to have a sequel, but we'll see if that kind of thinking goes elsewhere. I mean, I think people may get bored with too many comic book conceptions i think one thing that's new of course is that that girls are getting a shot now i mean the young adult fictions aimed at the female market Uh, i wasn't the biggest fan of the hunger games but uh I'm, i'm willing to hope that that will go somewhere us too david denby his book is called do the movies have a future
0: thanks for schooling us today be well And Brendan, it is a, it's a a—it's fascinating book, mm-hmm. especially there's one point when Denby argues there's just a kind of basic coherence big studio movies don't have these days. Yeah. Like Some literally don't make sense, it's just random spectacle. And you have to wonder what that does to audiences' brains over time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh,
1: well, me explosion pretty guns noisy, car chase, nudity, Iron Man spaceship. Oh no. <laughs> spaceship, it's dude.
0: It's happening. Uh, folks, coming up, director Martin McDonough talks about his new film, Seven Psychopaths, which is coherent in an insane way. Plus, Brendan searches for the new American cheese. All that and more when The Dinner Party continues, Vampire.
1: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the
0: show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we hear from playwright and filmmaker Martin McDonough, But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And in this case,
1: the best part of food, cheese. It is American Cheese Month.
0: Oh, Merry Cheese Month. Yes, Merry Cheese Month to you, good sir. Thank you, Noel (laughs) Fromage, I think we say.
1: I don't think we say that. Okay. Now, American Cheese Month is sponsored by the American Cheese Society, and their focus is on artisanal cheeses. But let's be honest, Rico. When someone asks if you want American cheese on your sandwich, what do you say?
0: I say no, thank you. Exactly.
1: You think of the pre-sliced orange stuff, sure. which is why I decided to find a truly great American-made cheese worthy of the name American cheese. At last. feeling patriotic during election season. So I went to Ideal Cheese Shop in New York, voted the world's best cheese shop by Forbes, hmm. and I asked owner Michael Bonetti to show off some U.S. cheeses that should be as popular as craft Singles. But before we got to the tasting, I wanted to know what kind of cheese that pre-sliced orange stuff
10: was pretending to be. It's not supposed to be anything. It's a, it really isn't. It's, it's, it most resembles to what I would say it would be like a young farmer's gouda. If you were to taste a young farmer's gouda, it has that creamy, mild flavor profile, and it's just become a mundane, almost dumbed-down version of a cheese. It's called processed cheese. Why, what does that mean? Processed cheese is is taking the cheese and they're culturing it in the fact that it's going to be preservative, so it's going to last a lot longer. Natural cheese is mold on a relatively quick basis just the natural way of it doing it. So processed cheeses prevent that from happening, but it also takes away a lot of the features and the good characteristics of cheese. Cheese is a living product, so it, it actually changes as you go.
1: All right, so let's so you have some cheeses laid out here. These are some of your favorite American cheeses. so let's let's this is why I love my job. Let's taste some of them.
10: We, uh, we can start off with the Grafton two year old cheddar is that classic cheddar from Vermont Grafton Village. It is a raw milk which means it is not pasteurized. Age two years is going to be pretty earthy, uh, nice little bite, sharpness. Uh, you just tasted a little of it, and you can give your opinion of it.
1: Yeah, it's really good. And so, I, when I think of like great old American cheeses, I know they're be, they're making them everywhere now, but Vermont traditionally is the home of American cheddar, and is that just because
10: of the dairy industry? Yes, Vermont and uh, Wisconsin were predominantly the big manufacturers of it, but California recently has actually taken over the highest volume of American cheeses. There is now 24% of all U.S. production is coming out of California. 2.6 billion pounds in 2011 of cheese uh, in America was made.
1: And if you were making a ham and cheese sandwich, could you go
10: for this one? Because it's not too exotic. It's just a strong cheddar. Correct. It's a basic, classic cheddar. Great mac and cheese. Great on sandwiches. Uh, you know, not super strong. And, you know, will melt beautifully as well.
1: All right, that's a contender. So what, what's our next one up here?
10: Second one we have from California would be called Midnight Moon. It is a uh, goat's milk cheese. It would be made in the, in the vein of, like, a goat gooter from California.
1: Let me try it. And it's called Midnight Moo because they milk the cows at midnight?
10: They always name their stuff a little bit funky. It's from Humboldt County. Oh, say no more. We know why. Exactly. They have a, another cheese called Humboldt Fog. It's a nuttier, maybe more of a wine cheese. Correct. It'll have some more crystals going on in there. Uh, great with a, uh, a, a white wine, anything really not really oaky. I think American cheese needs to pair with Coca-Cola. So, uh, so maybe do you have anything else? <laughs> Absolutely. We can, we can go on to uh, something soft, both of those on the firm side. This okay. is going to be a cheese from Virginia called Grayson. It is a uh, washed rind cow's milk cheese. When we talk about washed rind, it's going to be something that they're taking the rind and they're bathing it, typically in a salt solution.
1: Mm, this is really smelly. I love it. This almost reminds me of a, of a French cheese, not an American cheese.
10: Correct. It's basically patterned after a French uh, Alsatian Munster. Not the American Munster that we know of. French Munster is really soft, really pungent in flavor.
1: You know, if you scoop this out of the beautiful rind, it's got this like orange kind of rind. You could put it in a jar and it kind of
10: could be fancy cheese Whiz. Yeah, absolutely. This would be a little a little stinky. Some people will make a little face at this one because it does have a high aroma. The, the the taste is not quite as strong as the aroma. All right, what else do you have? All right, we're going to go to the fourth cheese, which is a two-year-old Tarantese. It's made after an uh, alpine cheese called Tom Abondance. So you're going to get really crystals in there as well. And this is from a company called Springbrook Farms. And it's 100% of their money goes to help kids that are in need.
1: Now, the crystals, you... What is that is that the crunch I'm, I'm, I'm
10: feeling and do people aim for that yeah certain people come in and they' are looking actually looking for the crunchies and as they like to call them it's is the crystallized amino acids and as the cheese dries out you're getting those little Crystallizes coming out, and those will be typically little white spots on the cheese. It seems like America
1: can make any cheese that other countries are known for. Is that true?
10: Yeah, I h- kind of hate that we try to always compare it to something else, and people are always looking to say, "Well, let's how ha- well, how does it compare to a European cheese or what have you?"
1: Because people, you know, that they- that they- France they had a head start on us.
10: Basically, it's the head start motion, and it feels like it's almost a copy, but they're all. It's a takeoff of, or a unique way of handling cheese. uh, Because if you took a French cheese and you taste it, you'd be like, oh, that's just great. Uh, It's on. You don't say, oh, it tastes like cheddar.
1: Cool. All right. I'm really excited about this last one because even my untrained eye knows that that is blue cheese. It looks really good. What what do you have for us? We
10: have uh, one of the finest cheeses made. It is called Rogue River Blue from Rogue River Creamery in Oregon. It won the American Cheese Society Best in Show like two out of the last three years. It is a seasonal cheese. Tons of flavor. It's like perfect umami flavor. It's just really mouthwatering. No doubt, it is. I mean, it, you got very complex flavor profile. This is going to finish it off. Any any meal will be at the end of the meal will be great with this blue. You could put that on top of a salad.
1: And so, uh, what's your favorite? What's your American cheese? If the American Cheese Council said you have to pick next year America's best representative cheese, what would you choose?
10: I would take the two-year-old Tarantese. I think this is a great story. It's a really good family out there that's doing this, and they're giving all their. Profits to children in need, and they have those kids come down to the farm and help on the farm as well. And it's just a great cause. The cheese is absolutely fantastic. It sells really good here at the shop. And uh, I would do the two year old Tarantais. And
1: so when you're home, all right, it's a weekend, um, you're making a sandwich. What are you? What are you gonna grab though? What will, like I'm assuming you don't have craft singles in your fridge.
10: No, we always have. A, I always have a little cheese in my fridge. Not as much as one might think. We're around cheese, eating cheese all day long, so I have to be careful. But uh, you know, a little ham and cheese sandwich. You making nice French ham that we have here, and then we'll put a little either Comte or American cheese. Wise, we'll put a little Grafton cheddar on it, make a little melt and. Go to town, watch a football game.
1: When you're watching football or something, though, come on, nachos. We can't melt any of this on nachos.
10: No, no, no I'm not gonna waste it on the nachos. No doubt, we'll we'll get the dips for those.
1: <laughs> so Rico, there you have it. Look for Tarantay's single soon mm. at a store near you. Yes,
0: fingers crossed. But you know,
1: I have to admit, I, I kind of have a soft spot for American cheese. being honest. <laughs> what? I I grew up in a place that puts cheese whiz on steak. You know. <laughs> Sometimes a hamburger just needs an orange gooey blanket, my friend. All right.
0: A blanket in which to wrap the corpse of your dead taste buds. I prefer the cheese cheese. I will stick with that. I'll take it all. I'm sure you will. Uh, listeners, you can chime in on this world-shattering argument. Tell us your favorite cheeses on Twitter. We are at Dinner party d n l d. Our guest of honor this week is UK playwright and filmmaker Martin McDonough. His many plays, like The Beauty Queen of Leenane*, have regularly made their way to Broadway since the late 90s. His film Six Shooter won the Oscar for Best Short, and his follow-up feature in Bruges was nominated for Best Screenplay. His new movie comes out this week. It is a black, black comedy called Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> and Martin, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So, to use a very overused term, this movie is kind of meta. It is, <laughs> yes. I
8: had to look that up. I didn't know what it was. Really?
0: No, but, uh... <laughs> well, it's, bo- it's, kind of, it's both a crime thriller and a rumination on crime thrillers. It, it is, it is. It, it's almost more playing
8: around with the whole idea of films about guys with guns and why we really need
0: films with guys with guns. Do you think you can summarize it for us really quickly?
8: Uh, well, the plot's about a screenwriter who's trying to come up with a script called Seven Psychopaths. And his two friends, who happen to be uh, dog kidnappers, kind of accidentally help him out by... Uh, Kidnapping the Dog of an Insane Gangster, uh, played by Woody Harrelson. Uh, it's one of those formulaic dog kidnapping meta, <laughs> peace and love movie. Very
0: standard. <laughs> yeah. I have to say that, first of all, it's very hard not to read the main character of the screenwriter writing crime thrillers, who is played by Colin Farrell, as some kind of stand-in for yourself, a screenwriter slash playwright who writes a lot of crime thrillers.
8: <laughs> well, to be honest, I mean, there are, there are details that I guess are me or the way I think, particularly... Um, his kind of love of Hollywood gangster films and his desire to do something that's a little more life-affirming and, and uh, yeah. spiritual
0: even, to go too far. I did want to explore a couple of those themes. Why are you obsessed with gangsters and psychopaths? All three of your movies, in some <laughs> ways, are about relatively sane people trying to deal rationally with irrational psychopaths.
8: Um, yes and no. I don't think in Bruges... I mean, Ray Fine's character, I guess, in Bruges, yes. was uh, a, bit, a little bit demented. A little bit. But uh, but that's Rafe playing himself. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> it's not that I'm into gangster movies, but I'm just into good movies. It could be it could have been a western, you know, I'm into Peckinpah. It
0: could have been a But it's interesting that of the westerns you pick Sam Peckinpah the bloodiest and most psychotic <laughs> of all western filmmakers. The bloodiest and the best.
8: Yeah, I I think Sam though as bloody as his films were Used to deal quite often with questioning the violence i think you know the men in the wild bunch for instance by the end of it they're
0: disgusted with themselves that final epic amazing shootout is almost a suicide march sort of on this topic without giving too much away the movie does struggle kind of with how and whether violence is appropriate Mm -hmm. and we had ryan johnson on the show recently he just made the new movie looper very very similar theme the tv show dexter same issue what yeah. is going on why is this idea so much out there do you think i don't know i think it's a good thing though
8: i think i would find it hard to do a, a gangster movie that was simply violent and fun and didn't comment on it i think in the world we live in today it's um uh, it's tricky to just to put those things
0: out there without questioning them that said there is a lot of fun in this movie Um, The word that came to mind when I looked at the cast, for instance, was crazy. Woody Harrelson, Colin Farrell, who you worked with before, Christopher Walken, Tom Waits. These are all guys known to be either volatile or, to put it very mildly, quirky. Yeah, Sam Rockwell, too. Yes. I wonder what you imagined it would be like to work with that cast and how it actually played out.
8: What Strangely enough, uh, as you said, I knew Colin, but I knew um, Christopher Walken and Sam Rockwell. I did a play with them uh, in New York a few years back. So I knew them, fantastic actors and a little demented, Uh, so they were perfect. And Woody Harrelson I've known for like about 10 years. And strangely, Tom Waits, we almost worked together on a stage musical a few years ago. So it was actually more like working with family on on the first day of shooting.
0: An extremely crazy, weird family.
8: Yeah, like most of our families. (laughs) Certainly in Ireland. So was working on the set sort of like a a dysfunctional Thanksgiving dinner? Um, No, I mean, as much as they've got a reputation to be strange or quirky, uh, they're all all Actually, just really good, hard working actors. Oh man, that's very disappointing. You, huh? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I think it is kind of palpable how much fun we had on set. There are dark elements to the story, but it's kind of a, a roller coaster ride of craziness. As Gandhi said,
9: Oh, you Ma- two, if it ain't Gandhi, it's <laughs> Jesus Christ. An eye
2: for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I believe that wholeheartedly.
9: No, it doesn't. There'll be one guy left with one eye. How's the last blind guy gonna take out the eye of the last guy left who's still got one eye? All that guy has to do is run away and hide behind a bush. Gandhi was wrong. Just that nobody's got
2: the <sighs> to come right out and say it.
0: <laughs> um, another question. What, what is it with you and cute furry animals? There are rabbits Uh in this movie, just for those who don't know, in in your short six-shooter, there's also rabbits. Uh, the play, the Lieutenant of Inishmore has a cat as a major player. Yeah. And this one I, involves a Shih Tzu dog. I I, I
8: do love rabbits. Um, you, with a story about kidnapping of a crazy gangster's dog, you could go either way with it. I guess you could go for a Rottweiler or you go <laughs> for the cutest, sweetest little yeah. pooch, um, imaginable. So, uh, Yeah, in a comedy. No surprises in a comedy, you're going to go with uh, a Shih Tzu. Now, with all the, um the press coverage of Bonnie, the shih tzu, and the uh, the puns in every
0: single poster. I'm kind of wondering <laughs> whether or not that was the best idea. You, made the right. um, you could have picked a poodle. <laughs> yeah. But do these cute, innocent animals represent something to you? I mean, they are. It is a regular feature of some of your work. Um,
8: it's. A, I guess it's an easy way to explore uh, the sentimentality of certain kinds of violent men, that they would kill you know, humans so easily, but are torn up about the loss of a dog or a cat. Actually, it's the opposite, though. One
0: of the television signs of somebody who's psychopathic is supposed to be brutality towards animals yeah that they started off that way yeah i try to shake things up you know (laughs) (laughs) all right we have two questions we ask of everybody on the show Uh the first one is if we were to meet you at a dinner party what question would you like not to be asked And I hope I haven't asked it.
8: Well, I see, I don't really see my, most of my stuff as violent or as violent as uh, people outside see it. So uh, when everyone asks about the violence in the films or the plays, I, I see them more
0: as rom-coms. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go to rom-coms, but it's certainly, these are well, not- definitely com definitely comedies. Sure. And these are not, uh, it's interesting because the same thing was leveled at Quentin Tarantino in some of his early movies. Mm-hmm. And if you actually look at you know the body counts in these movies, they parallel in comparison to action movies where this is not- not necessarily a charge that's leveled. Why do you think it is that crime thrillers specifically, people seem to notice whatever violence there is?
8: Well, definitely, I think if there's comedy in the film, then I guess people sometimes think we, the filmmakers, are laughing at the Mm. death count, you know? And I I think you you can explore more interesting issues in comedy than you can, actually,
0: in in straight drama. Uh, Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be either about you or about the world at large. Anything that you think might surprise people at a dinner party?
8: Um, Well, that Christopher is the one who fell... Everyone fell in love with the dog, but Christopher Walken above everyone really took bonnie he he was he was the most dog friendly yeah which i think is kind of surprising in some ways the outside view of him is maybe that he's strange or scary <laughs> or um unusual <laughs> unusual yeah but he's the sweetest guy and then even on the red carpet the other day he was the first to pick up bonnie and i, I think maybe he knew it was, he was going to get all the uh, press attention from the photographers
0: <laughs> he used the dog to attract the the paparazzi yeah I don't know. So does that mean he's sweet or craven? Uh, a lovely combination of both. <laughs> so Rico, I gotta say,
1: Christopher Walken stopped seeming scary after yeah. being in that Fat Boy Slim video where he's
0: dancing through the hotel. That was wonderful. You know, he kind of lost all his menace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he played the sweet dad in Catch Me If You Can. That yeah, is true. Yeah, there too. It's there just, too. it's going to take a lot of those roles to erase the memory of Kings of New York, where at one point his character shoots a guy for no reason while laughing. Well, know? the guy took his dog. Oh, well, that's true. And ladies and gentlemen, that is The Dinner Party for this week. Subscribe to our podcast at dinnerpartydownload.org, and you will be sure not to miss next week's show in which Swedish crooner Jens Lechman stops by. Speaking of California
1: crooner, Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our interns. Thanks to Jess Harwitz, Chris Clark, Chris Peters, Andy Cruz, and our big American cheese, Peter Clowney and our friends at the public radio business show, Marketplace.
0: Now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The band is called Tame Impala, and in case you were wondering, they're referring
1: to a medium-sized antelope, not the gigantic-sized Chevy automobile of yours. Yeah. Thank you, Wikipedia. And the band has a new album out this week. It's called Lonarism. Here's a track from it
0: called Elephant. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano, And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Uh, I gotta get this. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi. uh, You can't call me while I'm on the air. No. I I will call you later. Bye-bye. Man, that guy and his phone.